0: Welcome to Vibrant Visionaries with Heidi Bennett. My guest today is a new friend, and his name is Tommy Hunton. Welcome, Tommy.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for taking the time today. We're um, both in rainy weather yes <laughs> where are you located today I, I,
1: I am in los angeles where it is uh when raining uh happens it just it shuts the city down so it's a very interesting reaction coming for the midwest and being used to rain it's funny seeing the reaction out here
0: yeah what's it like over there
1: yeah it's funny because there's actually a question on the dmv driving test because uh when you come to california and become a resident you have to get a license uh officially within like a few days So. One of the questions was, when is it most dangerous to drive? Is it right when it begins raining? Is it 10 minutes after or is like an hour after? And it's interesting because it's actually the 10 minutes after because it rains so little in Los Angeles that when it does rain, it takes about an hour to actually wash off all the junk on the road, all the oil and everything on the ground becomes incredibly slick. And so I did not know that. Now I do.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, that's a really good tip. That's um, and, and to know that that's a California-centric thing because. I actually learned to drive later in life. So around when I was 40, and that was one of the things my husband reminds me of when it's rainy, which it's rainy here up in Oakland now, too. And he's like, "Okay, we'll just wait a little while before you get out there because it's going to be real slick and oily and um, exactly. Yeah, trippy. So there there's a little uh, West Coast (laughs) rain tip for all you drivers out there. So yeah, well, let's get into first of all, to give everybody a little context about why I've invited you on to Vibrant Visionaries, which is for those that are new listeners, this is a podcast where I like to invite on people who have a multitude of talents, people who are innovative and creative and aren't uh, easily pigeonholed into one specific creative field. So how would you describe what it is that you do, Tommy?
1: That's actually really challenging because if you're not familiar with any of these fields, you, your eyes glaze over. But basically, I, I write, which is probably the easiest thing for people to understand, is doing screenwriting and any kind of writing. But honestly, that's sort of how I started. The real uh, shift came when I discovered and learned about interactive, immersive entertainment. And that is anything that takes place in real life. But it can even incorporate virtual reality. It can incorporate theater. It can incorporate escape rooms and games. So I dabble in that space where I design puzzles on some level. I tell stories in that space, whether it's with actors or with games or anything in that space. So it's kind of I dabble in a lot of things in that environment, but it's all in... I think, is encompassed in immersive interactive entertainment. But again, people wonder what the heck that even is.
0: Right. Yeah, well, we can definitely get into that. I guess the first thing that kind of pops into my brain is something like... um around Halloween when they start doing those haunted houses and you know that you're going to have something jump out at you or like escape rooms or something like that where you're physically in the environment and somebody's created the space for you to interact with your friends and do challenges and kind of work together. Are, are those the kind of things you do?
1: Yeah, so a haunts are a good example. That's that's definitely in the landscape of it. I, I am not a haunt person. I don't really do well with jump scares. Mm-hmm. People often have a way in quote unquote, to this form by really experimental or innovative things like even role playing, which uh, like live action role playing LARPing has a sort of a a tough barrier for entry for a lot of people. They feel intimidated by something. No one wants to feel look stupid, passive entertainment, whether it's going to the theater at a proscenium based play whether it's listening to a radio or podcast or watching a TV show, movie, reading a book, those things are very understandable because you're passively consuming the entertainment. Video games are one step towards interaction. But again, it's in a safe environment where you're not on display. You're not around live people. As soon as you toss in live people in the mix, it becomes a different form. And you can experiment with so many different varieties of how you engage with audience, how you're involved, and adding technology is a whole other level. So yeah, I think... Haunts and escape rooms are very easy ways in because they take the pressure off you to quote unquote perform for other people. And in an escape room, you're in the space by yourself with your friends. You're not there on camera or with people watching you, expecting you to do well. This pressure's not there. With haunts, you're expected to walk through passively, you know, and not engaging or unlocking story content, but just waiting for things to jump out and scare you. But as soon as you add agency and creating these elements of how you interact, it makes these things really come to life.
0: Wow. So I guess that's what you're, you're talking about sort of the entry level, the ways that we sort of understand and can contextualize this idea, but it sounds like what you've offered and created has a more interactive element to it.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's what, that's what really intrigues me now with the space, is we're in this sort of wild west of interactive, immersive entertainment. And people have been experimenting in this form for a long time, but it really hit its peak because if you look at the people that are now in it, businesses are sustainable. They're big businesses. And it used to be that you have like a, a really experimental theater company in the 60s would do something where you're a character in the show, man. It's like, oh, edgy and weird. But that was very niche. Now when you look at things like Sleep No More in New York which is arguably like the grandfather of immersive entertainment in, in that in like the theatrical sense you know that's a giant warehouse where you're able to wander around and watch these beautiful scenes happening around you that's a very high level of production that people understand but then you move into the game world and escape rooms are a huge business They're, you know almost every city in the US and the world has an escape room uh, multiple ones. L.A. has a lot of them, uh, arguably the most per capita in the um, in the U.S. at least. And these are interesting ways to people dip their toes in the water and start to explore. I love being able to give someone agency, which is the chance to actually, their choices matter. You know, instead of like a haunted house where you just, your the experience is the same for everyone. You walk from point A to point B and then you walk out. But with an escape room, it's a little different where you have choices of how you solve things, but it's just either you solve things or you don't. Some rooms have decided to add in choices where you make a choice and something happens, something doesn't happen. But even then, it's still like a you pick the good ending or the bad ending. And that's just like skinning how you end the game and what video plays as opposed to actually unlocking story content. Gotcha. Yeah, it's harder to build in that space, but I think it's really rewarding when you walk into a space and you feel like you have you your choices have made something happen. It's really magical, I think. And that's where I love playing right now.
0: So it sounds like less of a yes or no response, like, yes, this unlocked this or no, it didn't. And more of a choose your own adventure situation.
1: Yeah, that's a really good analogy, actually. And and choose your adventure has linear pathways that branch off and then lead to uh, binary choices of yes or no. They might add a tertiary choice of giving you three options. But with this, like a good example is right, I love working with actors. It's fascinating to give you an experience where you walk in and there's a person waiting for you and you realize this person is a character you're engaging with and creating puzzles or interactions that allow you to talk to this person and let the way you choose to relate to them affect your story. So you can have an instance where let's say you're a jerk to this character. Well, the character is going to clam up a little bit and may not give you information. The character may be a jerk back to you. But on the other end, if you are nice to this person, if you're very sweet and even, let's say, a touch manipulative, you're flirty, you're trying to get this person to give you stuff, the person will respond in kind. And so it's kind of a fun way to give someone a sandbox to play in where you can choose to solve things however you would like, you know, and it's about empowering your actor on the back end side of it for creating content like this. To really make an experience where the actor feels like in your head when you're playing this character, if someone comes up to you and says, oh, here's an option, here's what I want to try something, the actor can may not have trained for that option. But in their head, you know what, that's a valid thing. My character buys that. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll give you the information. You know, there's an interesting way to let you feel like, yeah, you're creative you can reward people for being creative and coming up with solutions and there's something very empowering about that when you're a participant in an experience realizing oh wow this thing is going to respond the way i play
0: yeah that sounds cool and it sound is so is there improv involved too
1: yeah so there's there's a feel there's a couple people that i've met who are really uh, innovating the way it's called like they're calling it interacting but, yeah, improv is a big part of it. And it, it requires a particular type of training, though. It, it's not a... Like, looking at the show Curb Your Enthusiasm is a really good example of learning how that show is made. The show is very heavily improvisational. They do write scripts, though. So how do you find a balance between improv and script? Well, Curb does a really good job of... They write scenarios where they basically write a paragraph of, OK, in this scene, here's the things we have to have happen. You know, in the story focus on Larry in a sweater. So in the scene you know, the character you're playing has to mention the sweater at one point. Mention the sweater and give him a fork. Those two things have to happen. You find the rest of the scene yourself. And so as an actor, you have, okay, I know I got to mention the sweater. I can do it however I want. And I got to mention this fork. And the rest of it happens. So, you know, the scene's always got to go to that direction. But it's really, I think, exciting for actors when they have the toolkit. You get to find these amazing scenes that feel very invigorating, very organic, and it's, it's fun. So using that model of, of describing a scene you know, I'll sit down with the actors I work with and say, okay, you are a really bad fortune teller. You're a con artist and people are going to come up to you and they're going to need you to leave the uh, booth because essentially there's, I, I built an experience where you had to take over a fortune teller's booth. And the premise was this fortune teller is really bad. You need to take over the, the booth. The person doesn't necessarily want you to, but there's five or six ways you could do it. And the biggest thing for me is I don't like making people feel stupid. For me, writing puzzles, writing games, writing these experiences, you want to empower people. You want to make them feel heard and like they're creative geniuses. Because oftentimes people are. When you give them that ability and empower them, they do crazy, amazing things. So the idea was, I don't want you to fail. If you come up to the booth and say, and don't say the thing I want you to say, you know, you don't say the right line or do the right thing, and the actor's like, I'm not leaving, I'm staying here, sorry you fail, that's not a satisfying experience. So we, I deliberately work with the actors to say, okay, here's your character. Know your character inside and out. Here are some lines you can say that are kind of funny little quippy lines that are like your backup. So if, if something happens that's going to happen a lot where a character might say something to you, ask a certain question, you know how to respond to that. But let's try a bunch of scenarios. Let's figure out what are ways in which your character would get up and leave in a valid way. And honestly, the cool part is that If someone's getting close to failing because they don't know what to do, what are ways you can drop a hint as a character? What's a fail safe if they do nothing? That way, if they're really bad players, they don't feel bad. You can have the character organically recommend something or do something that you as the participant can get a really good hint of, oh, I get it. So I always see it as like swimming lessons. When I was a kid jumping in the pool and as you got better at swimming, the instructor would pull away from you and make you swim toward the instructor. Of course, I knew the instructor would never let me drown. It wasn't the person running away from me. It was the person encouraging me to keep going and seeing how far I could go. But at any point I wavered, they were right there cradling me. That's how I trained the actors. You want the participant to get real close. And you want to keep pulling away from them, challenging them, saying, come on, play with me. Let's have fun. Let's see how much you can do. And then as soon as they get stuck, they get frustrated, they waver, you're right back in helping them out.
0: It's so interesting because, you know, you're emphasizing empowerment and that the participant is clever and they can figure it out and that you also have a safety element involved there that you want them to feel safe to play around. That is so similar to the environment that I create for my clients as a coach for multi creatives, like I go into the coaching process with them knowing that they're smart, and that they can figure it out on their own. But I also want them to feel safe, so that they can get vulnerable and do things that are a little bit out of their comfort zone, but that they always know I'm there, I've got their best interest in mind, I know they can do it, but I can also, yeah, yeah, you know, sort of help them figure it out so that they feel like they have somebody always on their team.
1: No, I think that's incredibly valuable. I think that's the kind of thing where I imagine you probably push your clients to the point where, you know, they can handle it. Again, you are the swimming instructor. You're helping giving them a boundary, pushing them and creating them or helping them if they think they get stuck. And I love that. It's a beautiful thing.
0: Yeah, that's a great analogy. I might sneak that into my marketing material.
1: (laughs) Please do. Please do. You're totally welcome to it.
0: But yeah, the the idea of this sounds so intriguing for everybody involved, like for you as the storyteller and creator, for the actor, the team of actors that you work with, for the... Participants, I mean, it just sounds like a win win scenario where everybody gets to learn and play and interact. And so, to be very specific, where is it that people can experience this stuff that you're putting out there?
1: Yeah. So, to give you a sense of sort of what I do on a regular basis, so uh, when I came to LA to write in TV and film, I I did not care for it very much. Uh, I loved entertainment, I loved storytelling, but I did not lo- I didn't like the business side of it. And I was stuck at Disney for eight years in a very corporate hellish job. I was writing with a writing partner on the other side of things. So then that got very mired and. The politics of business and me just not clicking with people, me struggling to really resonate with people. I, I think for me, I, I have a really hard time hiding uh frustration with people mm-hmm. if I don't if I don't respect
0: them. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh and so it's tough on both sides. Having managers and agents who didn't get us or our material, meeting with executives who just were cowards and didn't care about taking risks or trying things uh, because our scripts didn't fit within their framework of what they thought was good. And of course, they gave notes that I thought were completely meaningless. And there's times that I love getting, I love collaborative feedback. I love learning. And But when the feedback they gave was useless, I'm like, you're just giving notes for the sake of trying to do your job without actually reading the script. So I got very stuck and very creatively unsatisfied. And then I saw Sleep No More in New York and did an escape room, one of the first ones to come to California, and my head exploded because this was the kind of stuff that I never ever expected would be real. I used to do scavenger hunts for people growing up. I used to do these things and wonder about these magical bits of reality that could be hiding there that that kind of encouraged people to work together and go on these little magical journeys together. It was very amazing and seeing that for the first time in real life made my head explode because I realized this stuff that I've always wanted to be real is real and maybe just maybe there's a career here. And so learning about escape rooms You know, I reached out to all the people that were doing stuff in that space, which was only a handful at the time. But one of the guys out of Ohio who had a bunch of franchises, he was just popping up left and right. Every weekend, he tried to open a new business in a new city, just be first in the city. And I learned about escape rooms from him. And he was a great businessman. And he really helped mentor me. I brought in my writing partner, who I really trusted. And who was also frustrated with the whole creative process. And I showed him and he's like, do you see what I see? That this is a storytelling medium, that we can do more in this space than's being done right now. And he got it. And so together we opened up an escape room called Stash House. It was a long process. We did almost everything ourselves and just pulled in favors and everything. Uh, And it took long time to open. But uh, in the end, we wanted a, a, a room and a business that challenged the conventions of traditional escape rooms that we could own ourselves. So there's no actors in that space just because it's hard to have a business that operates with actors always on hand. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: We wanted to operate all the time and didn't want to have to deal with having to train people or have bad experiences. You know, if the actors weren't ready or if people were less than desirable uh, in terms of training. So we wanted our first one to be kind of no actors, but still very story heavy. But we wanted to do a lot of promotional events that had actors that told the backstory of our game. That kind of explored the world and gave people these weird, interesting chances to kind of play around with our story and our world. And so that's one of the things that's been really satisfying is helping do promotional events. So there are festivals and uh, conventions for usually around haunts or design stuff that will typically promote because there's no like immersive escape room conference for the public yet. There's some trade shows, but nothing on the level of like, cool, let's do a festival for all the escape rooms and you can do cool events. So right now we have to jump in conventions that are kind of tangentially related. So we'll produce there. And then once I got into that, I started also consulting with just friends, people in the space who would do immersive work, who do games, offering feedback for free at first and then realizing that I actually had a skill at it and then just jumping in and helping places where I could. And so as I built up a reputation for that, I've consulted on a variety of things, on immersive theater pieces, uh, helping come up with like flow uh, and uh, working with the actors to make sure that they're able to handle participants. Because in an immersive piece, guests aren't trained about how to interact with actors. You have to have the actors be very defensive, ready to handle a disruptive guest without breaking the story or the character or the world. So it's a really specific kind of training process that I I studied improv. I studied acting and Meister training. I've been through these experiences. And so just from a sense of experience, began being able to offer wisdom and then in designing them beginning to offer a different perspective. And so I've worked on immersive theater productions. I was contacted by someone to work at a music festival and design a game for 80,000 people, which was an insane interactive experience. And yeah, consulting on every kind of interactive experience you can imagine. So I've been tasked to work on alternate reality games, which are kind of like games that happen in real life uh with phone numbers and websites that are kind of meant to blur the lines of where the world begins and the game ends. I've worked on virtual reality and mixed reality projects, mobile games, worked on escape rooms, of course, and role-playing, like live-action role-playing, and sort of all the things that combine it, and then also a thing called the Museum of Selfies, which is a an interactive exhibition that I helped co-create with a friend of mine. So yeah, it's, it's kind of, I dabble all over the space, but to me, I see it all as part of the landscape of interactive entertainment.
0: Yeah, so I, I can definitely see that too, how it all sort of connects. And, and one thing that really jumped out at me too, when you were talking was that you mentioned childhood and scavenger hunts. And that just gave me this little visceral mm-hmm. connection to that experience, that feeling that you get. I definitely recall being a kid and having this list of things I needed to find and that you're going to go talk with people that you maybe never met and go you know, look under rocks and climb trees and do all these things in this environment. For us, it was uh, Seal Beach, California. That's where I grew up. Uh, So it was a small town and you felt safe to explore and go to the beach and go to your cousin's house or the neighbors down the street. But it also reminds me of... You know, your career counselor or somebody saying like, oh, so you don't know what you want to do for a living. What did you love doing as a child? And, you know, maybe that's your career. And that sounds, you know, like a maybe a good place to start. But in reality, it's pretty Difficult to imagine saying, well, well, I love doing scavenger hunts. Yeah. Maybe as an adult, I'll be this thing that doesn't exist yeah. yet. <laughs>
1: That's true. I think, yeah. If, if, if I think if a college counselor or a career counselor had given me that advice, I would have rolled my eyes at them and not taken them seriously. Yeah. I think for me growing up, I was really lucky in that I grew up in Kansas and it, like you said, in a very safe environment where there was a park across the street from our house. It was a fairly like normal upbringing. And I felt really lucky because I never had to worry about. I don't. Know, I think there was an innocence to my youth, which I really embraced. And my parents did a really good job of, despite being in Kansas, which I think has a reputation for being kind of isolated and small-minded. They were educated. They traveled the world when they were younger, and they both valued education and curiosity and the arts. And so I was very lucky. I had two older sisters, uh, ten and twelve years older than me, and so for family vacations, I was dragged along as a child everywhere. And I loved it. I was never left home with a babysitter. And so I got to see museums and Broadway shows and travel the most of the U.S. when I was young. I got exposed to so much. And I was really lucky in that regard because I think it opened up my point of view and my, I think, willingness to go and travel places and be curious without feeling like I had to be nervous about something. I still have nerves and I still get nervous, mm-hmm. but I've learned to turn that off when, when those nerves are not real, like learning about, okay, don't jump in front of a car, you know, and walk in front of traffic because that's scary. And you get this instinct of like, okay, that's bad. And I get sometimes that same instinct when dealing with new situations, but I know it's not the same thing. I know a new situation is not going to kill me. So it's having to learn to turn and, you know, modulate those frequencies. And that really, I think helped me become more creative and open, but yeah, there was a really magical experience when I was a kid, my sister and I found a scavenger hunt in the park across the street. And uh, someone had just left a note on a bench. Uh, we left it in place because we knew it wasn't for us. And we followed it around. We were just kind of curious about this thing. Like, why would someone put this here? What What, what is this? And so we ended up going back to our neighbor's house and doing a scavenger hunt for them immediately after. And we hid candy for them and made the scavenger around their backyard. But we knocked on the door and just gave them the note and they went around and solved it when they got the candy We kind of stood at our porch and watched them, like, peeking behind a corner, watching them eat the candy. And it was a really weird sensation because we had just found this magical thing hiding in plain sight that we will never know the answer to. I'll never know who did that scavenger hunt. And to me, that's almost kind of more magical in the fact that this was just waiting there. And that was probably the origin story of where this really began. I never expected, like you said, that this was a career. But it was always something in the back of my head that I was nurturing because I loved mysteries. I love spy novels. I loved secret codes. Um, I loved adventure stories of heroes getting called to action, whether it's a fantasy story or science fiction, you know, a path like the Legend of Zelda or Star Wars, where a young normal person is called up to do great things. But all these things sort of told this interesting story to me of that, you know, one day you could be plucked out of regular reality and find out this magical world is waiting next to you. Yeah, it wasn't until I saw Sleep No More. And did a first escape from in L.A. That that world that I've always wanted to be
0: real was. Yeah, I'm listening very intently <laughs> at the way that you're telling the story. And something I want to point out is that mm-hmm. you know I'm not trying to turn this interview with you into you know a sales pitch for coaching. Oh no, it's actually interesting to that what I'm seeing that I'm connecting some dots here. I just want to kind of point them out Mm -hmm. to help sort of demystify that experience. And one thing that I do with my clients is we start out finding out what their goals are, you know, that kind of normal stuff, like what you might think you might work with somebody who's going to help you um, stay accountable to your actions and sort of move forward in your goals. But it's just a, a starting point. And when we talk about their goals, it's not just I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to do this, we go into why, why do you want to do this? You know, what, what's the real kernel of inspiration. But then we move on to what their skills are. And when I talk with clients about this, a lot of times if you maybe use like, you know, maybe you signed up for something where every week you're going to get a new inspirational email and it's going to ask you to task something. And it might say, Mm -hmm. what are your skills? And you might write down four or five things. But when I work with people, I really value giving them that space to explore and be curious and to write down, you know, skill after skill after skill after skill and and ask their friends, ask their peers, ask, you know, people they've worked with to remind them of their skills, but also what they love and why they love it. I ask them what they value and I give them a huge list that's like over 200 words, but I also say what you value may not even be on this list. (laughs) So there's this expansion of space and time that I like to give clients to really immerse themselves in. What do I love? Why do I love it? What are my skills? What are my goals? What are my values? And then they start to get a picture of something and it might come up to something like this. That sounds almost impossible. Like, wait, I'm gonna create (laughs) this immersive space with some improvisational, elements and acting and people are going to pay me to be a consultant on on a thing I wasn't even sure I knew and yeah. then you know then we do need to go through and kind of play at poke at what are the fears and like you said when you're young you know you you had some wonderful experiences with your family where you traveled and learned and cultivated that curiosity and yes we all have anxieties and fears around things. Look both ways before you cross the street because you're going to get hit by a car. Yeah. And then the other ones, some of them are maybe things that are really stuck in to our bodies from a trauma, Mm -hmm. you know, from childhood. Most of us have some traumas of some sort, Mm -hmm. you know, getting back to the the um, sort of the handholding or the um, swimming teacher analogy. When you have somebody to help you sort of navigate those murky waters, we are going to challenge those beliefs because sometimes these are the things oftentimes it's these inner fears that are really keeping us from moving forward with these crazy ideas (laughs) and notions. But once we do work with those and and I create an environment that's very safe, like I said, to experiment and share and cry and scream and do whatever you need to do and also, you know, laugh and that ultimately what we want to do is create an environment for ourselves where we where we can imagine something as big and different as what you've created for yourself. And and I believe that a lot of our listeners could relate to the idea of going from being a creative, curious child to saying, well, surely working for Disney is going to be my dream job. Wow, I can't believe it. And then realizing like, oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. In reality, sometimes our dream as a, as a child or a young adult to move to California and become a writer and work at Disneyland isn't always what it's cracked up to be. But that you can continue forward and say, this isn't quite right. I'm on the right path, but reality versus my fantasy of being a creative person in California, okay, that's not working. What is inspiring? What is interesting? And without looking at our values, our skills, and evaluating all the different things that light us up and really checking in with our body, you know, I'm sure when you went to that experience in New York, there's just something in your body that just kind of woke up and went, whoa, wait a minute, this, this is possible. And what else is possible? And how can I put my stamp on this? So yeah, all this to say is that working with me working with the way I do things, it's one of the ways that you can discover what that is. And there has to be a faith in yourself that you're ready, willing, and able to kind of look at the things that are scary, but then move forward because it's so rewarding on the other side.
1: Yeah, no, I think those are all good pieces of advice. And I think you're pretty spot on with all that analysis. I think for me, I'm asked a lot by people who are curious about this field, like, how did you get into this? Like, how can I do this? And I strongly recommend don't do the thing I did, which was nothing for a long time. The thing for me is that I was afraid of being a failure was a a big drive. And initially I was able to keep that thing toned down by saying like, shut up you, you know, that voice can go away. But the problem was that I, for a long time, got stuck at a corporate job that was very cushy at Disney, essentially being in a Dilbert cartoon. And I did not identify that I was in a golden pair of handcuffs, that I got complacent, that I got stuck. I got comfortable with the paycheck. And in the back of my head, I was always telling myself, well, the writing thing, that's your job, that's your career, that'll take off. But I wasn't doing anything to really make that writing thing take off. It was, it was, I would work a little bit, do some work, but the day job was on paper, perfect. You know, it didn't have a lot of overtime, but then it would drain, it drained my confidence and I was not doing good work at home. I was making progress on some level enough to tell myself, oh yeah, yeah, you won't be at this job forever. But looking back, it was like walking through an old Flintstones cartoon where you've been walking for an hour and you look back and you realize you're on a treadmill and the background has been repeating. You haven't been going anywhere, but your brain is telling yourself, oh, yeah, yeah, keep going. And that is the biggest way to fool yourself and get frustrated because for eight years I did that. And the weirdest thing was that I got so fed up, I ended up getting fired from the job, which was actually a a good thing for Mm me. Uh, I made a mistake. I was so beaten down and just floating by and just did not care anymore. I was done. I was at a breaking point, and I I could have chosen to correct it. And instead of correcting it, I just let it slip. And they eventually caught on that I made this mistake. I didn't own up to it. I lied about it, and they fired me. Had I not lied about it, had I just, okay, I'm going to go take my licks and go apologize, I would have still had a job there. And I don't know if I'd be sitting here today talking to you because I'd always told myself I'd leave, but I never got the courage to do it. I never made the steps to do it. I was always expecting that something magically would appear in the writing world to rescue me, you know, that something would pop up, that I'd sell something. And yeah, that could have happened, but I wasn't doing the real work to make it happen. And so I was given a choice, which was, you don't have a career anymore. This was not your job anyway. And you got fired. Eight years are gone. What are you going to do about it? You know, I was already in the process of opening Stash House with Don, my, my business partner, but there was never any expectation that would be to come the career, you know, we knew would take time to establish. So it's like, well, this is not going to take the spot. So what am I going to do with my life now? And I realized I did not come to LA to be a cubicle worker. So I made the choice saying, okay, you know what? I'm going to dive into this full force. You've made a little bit of traction in this world. You've gotten to know people in the immersive interactive scene and in the escape room world. Go for it. Do it. Because if you don't and you don't dive right in, you're going to be very unhappy. And, you know, that to me was like, yep, do or die. I shouldn't have done that way. I should have gone back and planned. I should have been more careful working with a coach or someone. That would have been so much better to be able to leave on my terms and not waste eight years. Because the scariest part of being at Disney that long, looking back, it felt like I'd only been there a few months. And that was terrifying because I realized how little I had accomplished, how little I had changed as a person, how little I'd grown. If I can condense in my mind all of those years into a few months of my mind.
0: Yeah, I hear you. I I remember working working for an independent business owner is kind of what I've done most of my working life before working for myself. Mm -hmm. And I always enjoyed that. I always enjoyed working for you know a coffee house or a bagel bakery or you know bootstrapped by somebody who has a vision. Yeah, I worked for a couple of women who had this muffin bakery. And so from the outside, like, how hard could it be? It's a muffin bakery, you're baking muffins. <laughs> but in reality, uh, they were in an unhappy relationship, the two of them as a couple.
1: Oh, oh, no.
0: And one of them was a little bit older, and she was from a corporate background. So she was, there were things I invite, I really admired about her in that, you knew the exact recipe to bake. You know, you knew exactly what the place was supposed to look like and how to close out the register at night. All the processes were in place in this very precise way. And my perfectionist side was very attracted to that. Like I knew exactly what they expected of me. But one thing that was really missing working at this muffin bakery was the um, playfulness and sense of joy of, you know, bringing something warm and tasty to the world from the oven through humans to humans. There was no human element. Mm -hmm. They really would have preferred, I think, to have robots working behind the counter. (laughs) (laughs) So you could never get sick because they didn't have somebody to replace you because you were just supposed to always Mm -hmm. be working Mm -hmm. at, you know, optimum efficiency. And uh, the other woman that was a little bit younger, she was um, a triathlete. So she kind of came from that place of always being in optimal health and, and being very physically fit and working in a regimented environment. So you know, and I like being somebody who knows what's expected of me and brings it as a, a responsible employee. But there was just no room for warmth and fun and softness and connection and camaraderie amongst your coworkers and, you know, your clients because of this rigidness. And I remember thinking, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm a young person with a job and save my money and pay my rent. And this is what you're supposed to do. This is life. This is work. And I remember going Mm -hmm. to a concert with my dad and seeing somebody perform. Their music was so moving to me that it made me cry, which is very typical. Everybody listening now knows how much I cry and i listen to or see Mm -hmm. anything. But I was crying so much. But I realized while I was crying and listening to the music and being moved by the performance that, oh, I'm miserable. I'm absolutely miserable in my job. And this um, uncorking of the the tears and the emotions and letting them flood out, you know, made me realize, oh, my God, I'm absolutely miserable. And, you know, then I gave my notice and, and left that job. But yeah, on paper from outside, it looked like a great for me but the reality was it was a real torture chamber of a muffin bakery
1: <laughs> i can understand it's it's uh but i'm sure you're happy that you finally left but what made you pull the trigger and wh- how do you feel like you got to your spot like did you always want to coach was it something it was a logical choice for you or were you pushed up to it
0: yeah that's interesting because so that was in Sacramento. And then later on, uh, after I moved to the Bay Area, I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do, but I had been working with a coach. Mm-hmm. My relationship with her was so different with than with anyone else, like working with therapists. And, and I, I have had some success working with, with therapists or um, getting together with friends and talking about Career changes, you know, working on problems and everything. But when I came to work with this coach, it was because I just felt like I had exhausted all my options. Like I couldn't see the forest for the trees. I just knew I was unhappy. And when I started working with her, I, I started feeling much more seen. I felt more understood. And I felt like this person believed in me already. Like I didn't have to prove to them anything. They just came with the assumption that I was already a smart, capable person. They kind of helped me unlock what it was that was making me feel frustrated and stuck. And and it was really because I was in a job I didn't like. It was, I was in a band, but somebody else was kind of leading the band and strongholding us and and making decisions that weren't really in alignment with where I wanted to go with the band. My relationship with my mom at the time wasn't feeling satisfying. We were at odds. And, and so I just felt like up until this point, I felt like I could figure out the stuff on my own but I need help. Yeah. And this person really helped me. They also validated my experience a lot. You know, I'd kind of confess these things that I was feeling or thinking or doing and they'd say, "You know what? Most people feel that way and that's very normal." And I think, "Oh, I'm not I'm not the weirdo that I thought I was." As you know, it's okay. It's okay to be who I am and all that. And so The long and the short of it is I tried several different things after I um, left working the coffee house that I loved managing down here in the Bay Area. I I left that job because even though I loved who I worked for and I loved the environment we, we had created, I was just not happy. I was barking at employees and, you know, not training new ones patiently and just the things that make you think, hmm, this isn't isn't the core person I want to be. I'm feeling judgmental and irritated and short-tempered. And uh, I went on a bit of a journey, uh, including because I'm a singer, I learned how to be a singing instructor. I tried that for a while. And the things that I learned from that was I didn't want ultimately to be a singing instructor. It was actually a bit of a strain on my vocal cords. And that's the last thing I wanted to do to my vocal cords. Mm -hmm. I felt very moved by the fact that when I met one-on-one with a person, gave them a space to feel safe to sing, that most every single person I worked with would break down into tears just because they had that space Mm -hmm. to be vulnerable enough to let out their voice, however it sounded. And that I was, you know, the other kind of things like making my own hours and developing something around my own values and skills and desire to create a safe space to explore and be creative and let out your true creativity, that all connected with me. So the idea of becoming a coach felt like I was helping people from their innermost core place of where they dared to be creative and that I just thought I want to create a place every time I work with somebody where they just feel absolutely safe to really let anything out and that nothing's gonna, you know, this is a judgment-free zone. So nothing's going to be, you know, like hanging out with your friends and and finding great peers and mentors is essential as well. Mm -hmm. I think there's just absolutely nothing quite like working with somebody where they're several of my coaching sessions, I'm barely saying a thing, I'm just creating that space of quiet for you to have your thoughts and verbalize them. And then sometimes, like you said, there's this kind of steering towards or letting them wade out a bit into the scary parts, but that I'm there and a light in the dark for them to help them feel safe. So yeah, that's ultimately how I ended up there. I found I met a coach that I really liked when I was here in the Bay Area. I worked with her a little bit. I went to the rigorous coaching program that she went through that was accredited by the highest folks of accrediting coaching and then I just started going through the program and and it was amazing and they always they always emphasized, you know, make this your own. You bring in your own innate skills and wisdom and you can make things happen for your clients that are amazing. And so that's how I ended up there. But it was it was a long, windy, <laughs> up and down road that included you know, me going and doing marketing and PR for people for a while because I like doing that. But what I noticed was a lot of times the people I was doing marketing and PR for, they really actually less needed a marketing and PR person and more needed somebody around them to help them recognize how great they were you know, like that. I was like building up their confidence by writing a great press release for them. And they go, wow, this, this looks like I know what I'm doing. (laughs) So it does all kind of connect, you know, when you put it all together.
1: No, that's a very powerful thing. Just, I think like going through and giving someone the confidence, I think that's probably the thing that shocked me the most was how every person I've met, Especially working from a space of people coming in off the street as a client who I don't know, you know, with the escape room or in the immersive interactive scene, people always are missing the sense of confidence of what if I look stupid, you know, or am I good enough? You know, when I was at Disney, I, I was sapped of my confidence. I was at a very low point in my life where I think if I had been as defiant or as um, energized when I first came out, I obviously would never have stayed there that long. But they kind of wear you down. You kind of get frustrated and going, is it me? What am I doing wrong? there's something wrong with me? You know, and getting that on both levels, both getting kind of the runaround in entertainment and at Disney both sort of gave me this sapped confidence where I just felt beaten down. And I can understand how people get stuck in positions where you're unhappy or you're stuck and you don't feel there's a way out. It's like being in a hole. You know, I'm sure I was depressed. I'm sure I was I felt, you know, powerless and helpless. And I think, yeah, getting pushed out was very good for me because I don't know if I would have left despite telling myself I would have, I don't know if I would have. So I think if I'd had someone who would have been able to identify and say, yeah, you are good enough. Here's some ways to get out. Let's plan. That would have been so valuable. There's something about having an outside influence an outside force. When people work together, it doesn't matter. Like you said, it can be just a person in a room listening to you, but the presence of that person changes you in a way where you can have more, you know, meaningful insights. It's just, it's funny how that works. Same thing as in solving experiences or puzzles with people. There's something very magical that when you put two people together and they're actually working together on something, they will often get the answer faster than when you put them alone. It's some magical gymnastics where someone truly working together with someone else, where you're suggesting things and using their suggestions off of yours and back and forth. It's this beautiful, magical thing. And that's one of the things I really love about this interactive immersive space is it encourages people to play together, to work together, and to connect. In these really interesting ways that harken back to the way we used to be as a species. You know, we used to be pneumatic tribesmen, wandering the woods and working together to build shelter, to go and hunt, and to care for children. And we are wired to be connected to people like that. You know, society has evolved a lot faster than we've evolved as people. We still harken back to those tribal units. But think about how often we actually get the chance to be with a tribal unit, with a, with family, with friends. We spend most of the day around coworkers and basic jobs, having to be somewhat reserved and not being ourselves, not connecting on that level. But when we go and play in those spaces, it brings us back to that group of nomadic tribes and going on a hunt. We feel adrenaline and dopamine and connected and being seen and being responded to on that level where your tribes, people respect you and know you and acknowledge you. There's something that's very invigorating about that. You can't fake those immersive connections that you get with people. It's why social media, I think in this day and age, screens and social media, the way we stay in touch with most people is not fulfilling because it's it's a very shallow way of staying in touch. It's not about staying in touch. It's about sharing information that makes us feel connected to people. It's being in their presence. It's being able to share things with them. It's having those moments that are very, uh, I think, supplemental to our needs. And I think that's why this field of entertainment is so interesting to me because, again, I love layering the world with magic. Yeah, there's a lot of horrible things going on in the world, and the world can be a very dark, awful place. But I don't like focusing on purely the negative. I think you can really get people up from being in these defeated positions by empowering them, making them feel seen and heard and connected to other people. And that's a way to really, I think, make entertainment something more than just passive, but meaningful and inspirational and connecting.
0: Well, it's been absolutely fascinating listening. And you've just expanded my idea of what getting together in physical space can be. And that is one of the things I value and love the most is getting together with people in person. And that is one of the things I've recognized with my family is when we all get together as a large group, I love seeing everybody. I didn't get together with the family for Thanksgiving, but they played games that was valued over um, everybody making elaborate dishes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everybody in the family is telling me how much more fun it was to just play games and not be worrying about, you know, a perfect meal.
1: Oh, that sounds nice.
0: I love it. I I love turning to those intimate moments with everybody and just having fun and being silly and playing goofy games together.
1: <laughs> no, I think that shows that the ability to, you know, whatever it is that connects you with people, it's like if, if something is going to bring some stress and worry, being able to remove pretense and hesitations and whatever it is, like the fact that you identified that preparing meals and this perception of it has to be perfect was a, was a hurdle. Like it's so smart getting rid of that and just making do with things that are exciting, that are fun and that connect you to people.
0: Hallelujah, brother. <laughs> so um, when I share links in the show notes, where can I point people to make sure they know what's going on now and in the future?
1: Yes, uh, I'll have you link to my personal website, which has a kind of a catalog of all the stuff I work on. I'm going to be updating it and there's a little game you can play on there. And then, uh, yeah, I'll have you link to Stash House and the Museum of Selfies and uh, anything else I can think of that I'll have up in the Mortality Machine, which is the show I'm doing in New York.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Again, this is Vibrant Visionaries, and I'm Heidi Bennett. You can find out more about the podcast at vibrantvisionaries.com. And you can find out more about me and my coaching at HeidiBennett.com. Thank you so much, Tommy.
1: Thank you, Heidi. It was a pleasure.